I'm going to do just half of the chapter. I think that uh, I want to spend a little separate time on verses uh, 15 through 28, but we'll uh, read the first 14. It's evenly divided between 14 verses um, in this 28-verse uh, chapter. This is a, uh, you know, there's times, there, there's passages in Ezekiel as a pastor or any Bible teacher that you don't really look forward to teaching. This isn't one of them, but this is actually a, a pleasure to teach, this, uh, at least this part of the 37th chapter, and, and for that matter, the second half as well. Both of them are, uh, are good sections of uh, restoration, and you see a lot of that in chapter 36 as well, if you are here last week, uh, just uh, the emphasis on the land. Uh, but uh, looking forward to us going through these verses together. So if your Bibles are open, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 14, Ezekiel 37. It says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many uh, in the open valley. Indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I'll put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. The bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over. There was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, and prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Then indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you again uh, for just gathering us. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the beauty of uh, what we see here, uh, you taking something that was completely dead and bringing it to life. Uh, and Lord, we know that you and you alone are in the business of bringing that which is dead to life. And uh, with your own resurrection, the resurrection of your own body, uh, you've given us new life. And so we just ask tonight as we look at these passages uh, that you would once again uh, just remind us of the depth of your greatness, the depth of our need for you, uh, whether we be a nation state or an individual or a family or as a church. And we just uh, ask for the wisdom and the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this chapter is one of these things that uh, at other points in time, uh, the church history couldn't relate to some of the things that we can relate to in our lifetime. Uh, everyone that would have read this chapter 150 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, uh, certainly, would have, um, certainly would have gleaned uh, some spiritual wisdom from this passage, but as far as looking for uh, exactly maybe what is it that, that God was showing Isaiah, and I'm sorry, Ezekiel, and, and uh, Isaiah speaks some of these things too, but what is he speaking to Ezekiel here, and you know, what are the things that, uh, that he's seen? Uh, and I think that if you have studied anything related to the modern state of Israel, uh, we indeed have a marvel in our own lifetime. I wasn't alive in 1948 when Israel became a nation, but um, uh, we certainly are seeing uh, so many things come to life 
even in Israel today. And we're going to look at some of these things for just a few minutes, and then we're going to get back and just uh, glean a few more things from this particular text, not only as it relates to Israel, but also as it relates to us individually and, and to people that really need to be brought to life, and then that really uh, impacts the whole world. But I do have a few things I just kind of want to go through uh, pictorially with you for a few minutes and, and give you some kind of background. Um, and before we do that, remember that when Ezekiel is writing this, so Ezekiel's writing this, uh, Babylon has just recently destroyed Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has been razed to the ground, uh, the temple has been destroyed, all the vestiges of the temple have been carried away, and not only that, but the people have been carried out of the land. And the, if we go back to chapter 36, if you're here with us last week, the land, God promised that the land would revive, right? That, that the land would come back to life, uh, even though parts of Israel today still need to come back to life. The scriptures talk about even that the deserts will bring forth streams. And so all of that, even where you see desert today, what we're seeing is not the full fulfillment, but we are clearly seeing a partial fulfillment and much more fulfillment than, again, people would have seen 500 years ago or even 100 years ago. In fact, a lot more fulfillment than even 30 years ago. And I, I can kind of give you some examples of how, how that uh, is. But at this time, remember when Ezekiel is uh, receiving from the Lord what he has seen. So the Lord picks him up by the Spirit. We've seen him do this already uh, in the book of Ezekiel. So God literally kind of picks him up and takes him. And we're not sure, does he literally go to a valley all the way over in Israel? Is it a vision? Uh, whatever it is, he is seeing literally uh, a picture of what it is that God wants him to understand about the house of Israel. And his people have been carried away into captivity. He himself has been in captivity for a while at this point. The whole nation has been carried away, dispersed. A, a small remnant of people are there, uh, but the nation has been removed from any type of sovereignty. And it really didn't, even at that time, it was kind of a vassal state uh, then anyway. But at this point, when Nebuchadnezzar destroys uh, Jerusalem, there's no sovereignty left for Judah for the tribe of Benjamin, for the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been taken away. So Israel is literally dispersed. And then what happens is for 70 full years, the nation is in captivity in Babylon. So 70 years, which is what God prophesied would be the case, 70 years, and that was also because they had defiled the land, they hadn't kept the old covenant, they hadn't done what they were supposed to do as far as every seven years, give the land a break, all of those kind of things that, that, that God had commanded. They had they had neglected those things, they had neglected the Passover, they had neglected the feast. And so the land was cursed during that time, but they were also driven out of the land. And then even when Israel comes back into the land, it's just a small portion that come back from captivity and will begin to rebuild the walls. You have Nehemiah and Ezra, and they're doing their thing to try and get the city rebuilt and get the, uh, the land re-inhabited. Uh, but all during that time, uh, for all the from that time all the way until 1948, Israel would have no sovereign nation. So even when Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, Israel does, is not a sovereign nation. They're under the rule of who? The Roman Empire. They're not a sovereign nation. They're paying taxes to Caesar uh, as opposed to having their own king like David or Solomon. So there's no sovereign nation all during that time. Then after Jerusalem is destroyed in A.D. 70, for the, you know, the second, well, not the only time Jerusalem had been destroyed, but the, the real big destructions were Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and then with Titus, the, the Roman commander who comes through and wipes out Jerusalem and puts down the rebellion in A.D. 70. Then you have, after that, the Romans do the same thing, but they disperse what's left of the Jewish people in the area even worse than Babylon did, just kind of making sure that they drag uh, Jewish people all over the world and replace them uh, to make sure that they never really become. Rome's, uh, Rome's emphasis when, when, uh, when the Roman Empire disperses them, the emphasis is that, that Israel would never, ever, ever become a nation again. They would never become a nation. And no nation in the history of the world has gone a couple hundred years 
not being a nation and someday becomes a nation once again. It's never happened, but once. We want to take a look at what Ezekiel is seeing here. So he, uh, he's brought into uh, this valley, and he sees this open valley in verse 2. In the midst of uh, the valley, it's full of bones, very dry bones, just you know, the kind of bones that you would see in the desert. You, know, you see the old westerns, and, uh, and there's that cow skull, and it's been there for eons and everything else. Just as dry as it could possibly be. You could actually barely tap it, and it would kind of crack. And, uh, so just completely dead but not just laying there, but it had been laying there for a long time. And that would describe the nation state of Israel too because it would have been laying dormant for a long time, completely dead. There was no life in the land, no, na- no sovereign nation state. So I just want to go through a couple of these if Nicole can advance this for me. Um, this is just kind of a, some artist's rendering uh, of what that would look like to come, you know, for Ezekiel to come and to look at this valley just full of bones. And he doesn't know what to make of it. Um, Even though he's already in captivity, even though the nation's sovereignty has been removed, he's looking at this scene like, uh, you know, son of man, what do you see? I I see a lot of bones, right? I see bones everywhere. It isn't until the 11th verse, look in your Bibles, verse 11, uh, you know, some people will try and say, well, I don't think this applies to Israel. Oh, really? Look at verse 11. Son of man, the bones are the whole house of Israel. There's your first clue, right? That God says who they are. He says definitively that the bones are the whole house of Israel. Again, you'll hear people today that will try and act like, well, I don't think it's Israel. You know, well, what do you think this verse? I don't know what it means, but it's not. You know, well, God says it. Yeah, it tells you exactly. Now, first he has Ezekiel see all this. And Ezekiel doesn't know exactly what he's looking at, but the Lord makes it clear to him in the verse 11, Son of man, these are the house of Israel. And then, he, and then the Lord even speaks to the cry within the Jewish state, the Jewish people around the world, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. So the Lord not only reveals that, that the nation has ceased to be in existence you know, for all those times, all those years, the nation was not in existence, but also that the spirit of the people was in deep, deep distress. Now understand that when, um, when Israel was dispersed as a nation, uh, and particularly since the time of the Roman Empire, two things have main, maintained consistency which, which really defy any society or any kind of ethnicity uh, of people in the history of the world as well as it relates to the Jewish people. And this is because God put it in the heart of the Jewish state to be splintered around the world, but yet still be puzzle pieces that can be slid back together. Does that make sense? Two things that that the nation state of Israel and and Jewish culture has kept all during that time, we're talking about the last 1900 plus years uh, since the Roman Empire. Um, One, the Jewish people around the world for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, married consistently within Jewish communities. And if that didn't happen, then as, as an ethnicity or a race, God calls them their own you know, special nation, then, then the bloodlines would have just blended in with everyone. There would not be a specific Jewish people anymore. Does that make sense? So in other words, by continuing, you go anywhere in the world, if you go down to Buenos Aires, Argentina, you go over to Poland, you go over to London, you go anywhere around the world, there are literal Jewish communities that have been there as long as they've been there. And they continue to have their own synagogues, their own schools, married together, not exclusively. I know that you know Jewish people have also married Gentiles, I get that. But for the most part, had there not been the consistency of keeping the community together, and I don't, God just put that in the heart to stay. Number two, there remained a love for the land, even though many of them had never been to Israel once. You're familiar with the statement, next year in Jerusalem, right? That's been said for eons now, that just next year in Jerusalem, this belief that someday, whether they were living in the Middle East, whether they are living in 
Africa, whether they were living in South America or North America, that many would still yearn to go back to the land. So the statement would preserve all throughout Jewish communities around the world. So what he's seen is a dr bunch of dry bones, a nation that no longer exists, at least as, as Ezekiel sees it, but God is saying that in the spirit of them, they're saying, our hope is lost, we're cut off. But somehow through all that, God also puts just enough desire for everyone to kind of hold together wherever they may be around the world. And that'll be important because of, uh, of God bringing the nation back to the land. Let's take a look at the next one here. So in World War I, this is actually, these are pictures from World War II, and these are uh, uh, Auschwitz um, specifically. And then um, you had all the different concentration camps, Dachau, all of those things. Those things uh, that Adolf Hitler, who was used by Satan himself to try and destroy what was left. Remember, they're not even a nation state, but since the people were still in aggregated communities, Satan himself uh, comes after the Jewish people where they're at in different parts of the world to completely destroy, because Satan knows the Bible too, doesn't he? And even other people don't believe Ezekiel 37. Guess who does believe Ezekiel 37? Satan does. So he was going to do everything he could to stamp out any possibility of these dry bones ever coming back together. Now, actually, in World War One, in World War One, there was um, already a movement afoot, uh, a Zionist movement of, you know, at that time, England had control of what we would consider today modern-day Israel, uh, and some people would call Palestine. Do not call it Palestine when you go to Israel. You will not make friends with people over there. They do not like the term uh, because it's Israel. <laughs> the land was Israel a long time before. And, but nevertheless, um, the, uh, in World War I, there were a tiny amount of Jewish people that were already coming back to the land. And they didn't get good reception from the Arab tribes and things that were there, but there was a small group that were actually there, and there was a movement. Uh, you can actually go back and read, uh, even U.S. presidents and uh, all the way back to Thomas Jefferson were having discussions about could there ever be a revived Jewish state. You know, so even our presidents, 17, 1800s, were discussing you know, the potential of a revived Jewish state, but it, would never, it never would come about. Uh, Britain... Uh, during the um, uh, during the uh, World War One, uh, they had were a disadvantage to the Germans and weaponry. And uh, a Jewish man um, there in London, who actually would later become uh, Israel's first president, uh, he actually helped uh, with what was it? He was he was a biochemist, and so some of the weapons he actually helped uh, England formulate to fight in World War I, and that gave some favor to kind of a movement that kind of grew a little bit more in potentially England saying, all right, we'll do what we can to help maybe set aside some of the land for a Jewish state. Now, that was way back in World War II, but it never really came to fruition, and then comes the rise of Nazi Germany, and then when Hitler takes over, Hitler uh, then, he goes marauding across Europe, rounding up, trying to uh, kill and slaughter every single Jewish person he can. But what Satan meant for evil, God still meant for good. It's hard, it's hard to believe. Matter of fact, if you witness to unsaved Jewish people, the Holocaust is one of the biggest roadblocks to many of them coming to Christ, even to this day. Would you agree with that? I mean, there's many. I've talked to Jewish people that, that um, you know, they're, they're okay with me being a Christian. They, they, they understand, hey, if you want that whole Jesus thing, you know, that's for you. But the God, if, if God really cared and the God of the Bible really, you know, uh, really cared about uh, us and it really was the Jesus that you follow, then, then why would the Holocaust have ever happened? Why would God allow such a thing? Uh, and even though it was a horrific thing, 
again, satanic in nature, uh, just like, remember, everything that Satan's done to pursue and destroy the nation of Israel has always been satanic. Haman, remember, Esther and Mordecai, that was a satanic effort. And even to this day, uh, the Jewish people celebrate Purim, you know, that, that, that they had been delivered, that God, you know, comes to their rescue. And, and uh, all the way back to the Egyptians, you've got Pharaoh, that was satanic in nature, and to enslave and to throw the firstborn babies into the Nile River. And all of these things have always been an, uh, a, a tool of Satan. Matter of fact, when you look in the book of Revelation, uh, look there real quick. Uh, let's see if I can turn you over there. Um, the woman persecuted in, in Revelation chapter 12 is a picture of Israel. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 illustrates for us that Satan has always been trying to destroy Israel. Always been trying to reduce Israel to a valley of bones. Completely dead. Verse, uh, Revelation 12 verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head garland of twelve stars. Think of the twelve tribes. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain and gave birth. Another sign appeared. And behold, a great dragon, a fiery dragon, having seven heads uh, and seven diadems. Now in verse 5, she bears a male child. Now that child is Jesus, right? But Jesus comes through the bloodline of Abraham, through the bloodline of David. Um, Jesus is the male child. But it goes on in verse 13. We actually see in verse 13, it says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who's the woman that gave birth to the male child? Israel. The woman is Israel. The male child is Jesus. He comes from, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But the woman that gives birth is Israel. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Now this is in the tribulation period. Uh, and in verse 15, uh, it tells us the serpent spews water out of his mouth. So even in the tribulation period, Satan is still trying to destroy Israel. Um, and then in verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. That is Gentile Christians, by the way. Uh, we are the offshoot. Uh, we've been grafted in, if you will, uh, according to Paul, writing to the Romans. Uh, so Satan has always had this plan, and he's failed every time. But in the process, he's, he's really harmed, killed, maimed, destroyed many, many people. But he's always had a plan to destroy the nation-state of Israel so that the prophecies in the Scriptures wouldn't come true. I know, it's, I know it's a, it never works. Satan will never win, right? But people have the same kind of loony thoughts, too, that uh, maybe God won't do what he actually says he'll do. That's sin nature. But Satan has been uh, chasing, hunting Israel for so long, and so you've got what took place in World War II, and as vile as it was, and I've been to the Holocaust Museum in, uh, in Israel, what a, what a sad, and maybe you've been to the one in D.C. or even the one here in Richmond, it's very, very difficult uh, to even go through. Uh, but what God did out of that is through that horrific situation, there was an international outcry afterwards, well, I wouldn't say that, as a matter of fact, it almost didn't become the nation state of Israel. But there was enough, there was enough momentum that the nation state was born in 1948. So let's go ahead and take a look at the next. Um, and this becomes a miracle that, you know, writers in the 1500s and 14, they couldn't have imagined. They would have not really understood the 37th chapter. But in our lifetime, because we have plenty of people that were born well before 48. My grandmother is 97. She's still alive. She was born well before 1948. And she was in her early 20s in 48. <laughs> so, uh, so when this took place, this is in the lifetime. This is a contemporary thing. This is not yesterday's news. We still have people that are alive, many people. Uh, and so Israel becomes a state, uh, a nation of its own. Never before in the history of the world, hundreds of years, uh, and Israel is now, once again, a sovereign nation, just as it was under David and Solomon. Granted, they don't have a king, now they have a prime minister, 
but nevertheless, they have a sovereign world leader. They're a nation at the United Nations. Granted, they have to deal constantly uh, with uh, criticisms that, that, that are undue and, and even false in so many times. But 1948 becomes a seminal moment in the history of the world, and Ezekiel 37 becomes a lot clearer after this point. Now, other things would take place after that. Let's take a look at the next. Um, as soon as Israel becomes a nation state, it has immediate, remember the nature of Satan. Is he going to rest ever to hunt Israel as a nation down, as a people down, and born-again Christians as well? Is he never going to stop? Relentless until he himself is thrown into the lake of fire, the attacks will keep coming. Israel, as soon as it becomes a nation, uh, basically the world steps back, and it's like, if Israel, if you can survive, good luck to you. That's basically what it was. Immediately they were attacked by Arab, uh, Arabs from all around the area. Israel's attacked in 1948, 1949. They go through the Arab-Israeli wars. They're under constant attack during that time against all odds. As a matter of fact, you can watch the, the video series Against All Odds. Some of you may, may have seen that before, but some of the miracles that take place, you know, I mean, there's countless stories of true miracles during that time where, you know, they're outmanned, they've got no shot, battle after battle, win after win, and, and then that continues in the Six-Day War. You actually see that one plane, that's a picture of the Egyptian Air Force, where you know, Israel basically wiped out the entire Israel, Egyptian Air Force while it was still on the ground, and all the Syrian tanks that they destroyed, and all of them just defied all odds, mathematical, military-wise, any pragmatic look at it. Every, matter of fact, the whole world, even the, in the Six-Day War, those of you that remember that, I don't, I have to read up on these things, but that was born two years later. But uh, you can go back and you see that the whole world actually thought Israel was toast. There was no way they would survive these things. But once God gave birth and the bones come back to life, then he was going to sustain until the rest of the prophecies, which we'll get through the later part of the, uh, the book of Ezekiel, all those things still have to come to pass. And so the constant attack, the immediate attacks were there, but they've been constant ever since. Even right now in the news, you know, it's been almost a weekly occurrence, Someone is stabbed or some kind of attacks are taking place. It's constantly, it's just Satan's desire to devour, kill, destroy, uh, to go after what God has already done. Let's take a look, look at the next. Um, and so then we've got uh, three images here of, this was uh, on the far, I can't be on both sides, so you guys have to follow me over here. Uh, the Palestinian, uh, Palestine Transjordan, so this is before 1948. Uh, under the British mandate, you had little pockets of Jewish people that were in the land, but they, they weren't uh, a nation. And so they were living there, trying to put roots down, but against a lot of kind of oppression and constant badgering from the people that were there. Now the land, the fact that some Jewish people wanted to live there just speaks to that love that only God could put in the heart for the land, because the land was ugly. It was barren. It was bone dry. The, the, the same bone dry that Ezekiel saw in the bones would also apply to the land. Go back to chapter 36 last week. Uh, the land was not a place that any of you would say, boy, I would love to live here. There was no grocery store. There was no highways. There was nothing vegetation. Everything was as dry or swampy. Parts of it were swamp. But most of it was just completely like wasteland. That's what it looked like. And it's the kind of stuff that goats can live off of that no one else can. And that's what it looked like. And yet, there was already in the heart of many Jewish people to say, let's put down roots. Now, it would take an incredible amount of work of irrigating the land and God to do some, some miracles along the way. But then comes the formation of the nation state in 1948. Uh, you see all the yellow, not the orange, look at the yellow. The yellow is what the United Nations said, all right, that's what you can start, that's your land. The orange is what Israel picked up in the immediate 1948-49 wars with the local, the Arab-Israeli wars. All the orange was picked up in the first two years because they weren't given any of that orange. 
Notice that the United Nations basically gave them Israel without Jerusalem. They did not, and, and when they did gain Jerusalem in the 48, they didn't gain all of Jerusalem. They gained about half of Jerusalem because the other half of Jerusalem, including everything in the old city, which includes the Temple Mount and the lower part of Jerusalem, all that was still under Jordan, the nation of Jordan. So even when they captured part of the city, they didn't get all the city, and that didn't come until the 67, uh, 1967 with the Six-Day War, and then Israel not only captured the rest of Jerusalem, but all the West Bank, and they control, even though they cede control from a government perspective, they allow the Palestinian Authority runs the Gaza Strip and certain cities within the West Bank. Let's take a look at the next one. And so this is what, uh, that blue again shows the land that was given from the United Nations, same as the yellow before. The United Nations gave them that, but didn't give them Jerusalem. By the way, what is Israel without Jerusalem? <laughs> that that, that uh, Jerusalem is Mount Zion. Jerusalem is the city of David. That is the centerpiece. That's the heartbeat we talked about last week. So the United Nations trying to give them their land without giving them Jerusalem. Uh, it was a little bit of the enemy, well, a lot of the enemy working there too. Uh, but God had other plans, didn't he? So immediately they gain almost all of Jerusalem, but not all of it. And then uh, there you see 48, that's the Arab, that kind of shows you where the Arab invasions came from. And somehow with this tiny scrappy military, barely out of, barely out of the ashes of the Holocaust, they win. Should have never happened. And then you see uh, today, or, or 1948 there. All right, so let's take a look at, take a look at the next one, Nicole. So this is Israel today. These are some pictures that I took when I was there. I, I've shown you guys some of these, but I just want to uh, give you a little bit of a flavor. The land is alive. This goes back to the 36th chapter. The 36th chapter talks so much about the land coming back to life because when God begins to revive the land, he's also reviving the people. When God revives the people, he's reviving the land. Uh, we don't know why God loves that land so much, but he does. And so all of this... I mean, there was parts that were green, but way, way less, just tiny, tiny little areas. I've I got a chance to talk to uh, people that uh, had moved to Israel you know, 40, 50 years ago, and what they remember was bone dry everywhere, desolate, desert, you know, all this swamp area. But there was a lot of work and ingenuity. You know, God gave a lot of wisdom and uh, even patents. Like I said, uh, if you're here before, um, Israel was the, was the nation that invented the drip irrigation, which is amazing. If you if you know the little the, the flat hoses have little uh, holes every like that came from Israel, and they were able to uh, irrigate areas uh, with a with a fraction of the water that it takes. You know, with those you know huge irrigation spigot things you see in Iowa and stuff like that, or uh, that they use. Thousands of gallons were drip irrigation, little drips like that, and they're conser they conserve a ton of water. But that's actually in the Valley of Jezreel or the uh, Megiddo. That is the very valley that someday Armageddon will be fought in, in that valley right there. Let's take a look at the next one. But you can see how green it is today. Uh, that's actually the city. Uh, this Sunday, you'll hear uh, from a gentleman for just a couple minutes. He's passing through. He's been speaking to a lot of Calvary chapels and churches around the country. He reached out to me. Um, he's a friend of the Scots who attend our Jack Nakashima. Um, he's actually moving to Israel, and he is going to live, and I forgot the name of this particular city. Um, it's not one of the big ones, but, uh, but I actually grabbed this picture. This is the city he'll be living in. I've completely forgotten it at the moment. But he's moving there with his family, and uh, because a lot of the smaller Isra Israeli cities are growing so fast. I mean, they're doubling and tripling in size over time, and uh, God is just doing an amazing thing about all the nation it just continues to grow, and uh, Jewish people that are coming back to their homeland, and those that are fleeing Ukraine, and those that are getting out of Russia, and those that are getting out of Ethiopia and Somalia and places like that, but they're coming, and they have a desire to pour into the land, so what has been taking place since 1948 continues, and more at an exponential level, even now, the land continues to be uh, you know, just transformed. So 
nobody would recognize. If you took someone there that lived there in 1928 and brought them there today, they would think, they'd say, this can't be the same place. Can't be the same place. Let's take a look at the next one. Um, these are pictures that I, I, all these other ones I took, that was, uh, those are orchards. All that right there, that, those orchards there, it was all swamp. All of that was swamp. Again, some of the other valleys that you've seen were just barren, nothing there, weeds, rocks. They had to remove so many rocks, just, Israel's got a lot of rock, a lot of limestone, you've got to move all that stuff. Uh, but again, they removed rocks, swamps, those are all orchards. Take a look at the next one. Those are, I think, those are orange groves. Orange groves there. You see oranges, you see lemons, you see limes, all those things. It's amazing because with those different climate zones, they've got areas where they grow apples, they've got areas where they grow bananas. Bananas are not native there, but they, have, they now grow a lot of bananas. Uh, they have you know, really amazing technologies to use uh, as far as these little mosquito net things that actually retain heat and water because it gets cool at night, like in California. It's a, parts of it's a, a desert climate, but then other parts of it actually gets moisture if you're up near uh, the northern part, uh, Haifa and all those areas. They get, they get a lot more rainfall than other parts. Take a look at the next one. Uh, I took this picture at close range, obviously. That was, we were up at near Mount Arbel there, and just the morning dew, and just like David talked about, you know, the uh, that dew on the ground and just God just kind of waters uh, areas that was just lush and green. Things, again, that at other points in time, that wouldn't have been the case. Take a look at that is, uh, those are all flowers. Those are rows and rows of flowers that will be sent to Europe and mostly Europe, uh, but other uh, parts of uh, the Middle East, North Africa, where you might have places that also uh, fancy hotels in Dubai or things like that, but mostly Europe is where the vast majority of those flowers end up. And so, just I just all around the, you know, I would take these are all different regions too. Everything that I just showed you, those are different spots. That's not like all within. Those are each, you know, significant, totally different areas of the country. Take a look at uh, this, and this is my last one. So, when you go to the Holocaust Museum, there, notice the, notice the chapter. Ezekiel what? 37. When you go to leave, that's exiting. The last thing you see is Ezekiel 37. What, not just Ezekiel 37, look at the 14th verse. What does it say? I love, when, I love when even unsaved Jewish people are walking in the path towards the Lord. Because it says, I will put my spirit in you. They put breath, Spirit of God, Spirit of the living God. I want to just, uh, in our remaining minutes, I just want to go through four things. Uh, you, can, you can darken the slide deck there, but four things that I just want to uh, parallel between Israel uh, and us as individuals, because we all were at a place where, where God found us uh, we were dead, dry bones. Four things. The first is uh, the condition that we see that Ezekiel comes upon. He comes upon you know, all of this valley of dry bones. Um, and, and the Lord asks him this question, uh, can these bones live? You love when God asks questions that he knows the answer to. Ezekiel's been hanging out with God long enough to take a very humble answer. What does he say? Lord, you know. You know, the longer we walk with the Lord, we won't have presumptuous answers. Lord, you know. You know, he's been around long enough and he's seen miracles that he, he could take a stab at it, but he doesn't. He just says, Lord, you know. Now, he might think that most definitely God can do it, but he just says, Lord, you know. And I think there's a good wisdom in, in our life, uh, the things that we encounter in life to say, Lord, you know, just to learn to have that as a response. But the condition is what he's seen. He knows there's nothing he can do about it. When you and I come upon an unsaved person, earlier today I got a chance to witness for a full hour to a gentleman. 
my day did not go as I thought. Almost none of my day today went the way I thought it was going to go. But nevertheless, God had to be as a pointed hour, full hour, where I was witnessing to this guy. And I can no more bring someone from the place where they can't really see it yet, and they're still in darkness, than you can, but the, but the Lord can. Isn't that great to know? We simply present the one who can actually call people from the grave. Remember when Lazarus died? Jesus said, what? Lazarus, come forth. No one else can do that. What we do, as I talked about on Sunday, we actually ask Jesus to stand in front of us and call them. That's what we're doing. Ezekiel's looking there, he sees all this uh, dead, completely helpless, lifeless. What can he do? Nothing. What can the Lord do? Everything. Um, now, there's still parallels. It's interesting, when, when you look at uh, Israel, you look at Bible prophecy, there are, there are foreshad Israel itself gives us almost this, the land and the people give us a type of the same condition that we find ourselves in, dead without hope. But as God does a prophetic work in the land and the nation state, it actually is a witness to God's validity and all the other things that he can do with individual souls, marriages, families restored, any, anything. God can restore anything, right? Anything the locusts have eaten, God can restore it. God can repair it. And so looking at what any, any condition we look at, it's just a reminder that God can bring life to anything. Now Israel, uh, one other thing, back at, you know, look at the land, uh, even back, you know, J. Vernon McGee, who you've heard me quote from, uh, you know, he was writing his Bible commentaries in the late 70s and early 80s. And he wrote uh, in his commentary that's copyrighted 1982, he said, uh, so you're talking late 70s, early 80s, he, he says this, all you have to do is drive through the land and you will know that this prophecy is not yet fulfilled. That was then. Meaning that he said it still looked like a wasteland, most of it to him, even at that time. What that tells me is, again, never give up waiting for God to do a restoration process. Because sometimes it takes some time. Even what, even what Ezekiel's going to witness, notice that, notice that the resurrection of the dry bones doesn't happen in an instant. It's not the twinkling of an eye like the rapture, right? He hears a noise. It starts rattling. All these things, it, 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 it's not an immediate thing. It's a process. And God's been kind of unfolding this process. Uh, at the same time that uh, Jewish people are coming to Christ, some still aren't, right? But they're still being called. They might still be in darkness, but they're still being called. The condition we recognize, the solution we keep going to and say, Lord, you know, Lord, you know, Lord, you know. Individually, we were in the same dead condition, Colossians 2.13, Paul writes, and you being dead in your trespasses. We have the same parallel condition, uh, dead unless the Lord comes along. Now let's take a look at uh, three more things. The, the second is the need. We see the condition, the condition that Ezekiel comes upon, dead, dry, without hope. What is the need? Uh, well, the need is for God to give life, to breathe. Uh, in verse 5 it says, Surely I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What did he do with Adam and Eve? He breathed into the nostrils of man life. The need for everybody is for God to give them life. Talking, when I was sharing with this guy, you know, just listening to his life, he needs the bread of life. People need the life of Christ. Even if they don't recognize they need the life of Christ, dead bones don't know what they need. They need the breath of God. God says, I will cause breath to enter in and you shall live. Acts 17.25 says, he gives to all life breath. He gives to all life breath. Animals, people, anyone, anything that has life, it's given by God. But the greater need, and this is another parallel with Israel, when you think about Israel was born as a nation, 
God gives birth to this nation, it birth with great pain out of Egypt, right? Great pain, literally like, like a, a woman in labor. The, the nation gives birth. They're in the wilderness for 40 years, just kind of, you know, maybe the toddler years or whatever you want to call it, just uh, gives birth and then becomes a really rebellious teenager as a nation, right? That's, it becomes this really, but worse than that, it just dies. But Jesus, remember when Nicodemus comes in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. Israel was born a second time as a nation because it had been gone for 1,900 years, and it had to be, God's making the illustration. If people say, well, that's too strong of an argument that it was born again. No, God, God's the one that says it was a valley full of dead bones, that it had to be reborn as a nation, and only he can bring a rebirth to a nation, and only he can bring a second birth to our souls. Amen? So you kind of see the parallel there, that Israel had died as a nation. No one thought it could ever be resurrected, and then it's reborn as a nation. And then we're re- when we're saved, we've been born again a second time. We were born first of the flesh. We're born second of the spirit. Now, the parallel doesn't, some of the parallels won't hold exactly because God has a different plan for the nation state than he has for us individually, but many of them do mirror each other. Uh, the second birth of their, you will. But at this point in time, even when Israel, look at verse 8. Uh, when Israel is born this second time, comes back to life as a nation in 1948, uh, there's a clue, I believe, and, and other Bible scholars believe this as well. Look in verse 8. It says, Indeed, as I looked, the sinners of the flesh uh, came upon them, skin covered over them, but there was no breath in them. Right now, Israel has been born again as a nation state, but is not filled with the love and acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as a people. Individual pockets, yes. But as a nation state, the breath is not in them. Do you see what God's done? He's raised them. They're no longer dead bones now. They're up walking around. But the Spirit of God, when Jesus is once again sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, then verse 14 comes into play. Does that make sense? So in the process of being reborn as a nation, it's not the same as our second birth. Our second birth, we now have the Spirit of God living in us. Israel's rebirth as a nation is a slow process. Now the nation is up and moving around, and there's life again, but the life of God is still not flowing yet. The temple's not been rebuilt. All kinds of things that are still coming aren't there yet. So we see the process taking place. The need, though, is for God to breathe life. The third thing we want to look at that Ezekiel observes here, the power. Uh, So God gives Ezekiel this command to prophesy. Um, What a privilege, uh, you know, I personally have to preach from a pulpit and prophesy the Word of God, speak the Word of God. You have the same privilege. You can talk to your kids, your neighbors, your family members to speak the Word of God. What you say may never convince them, but one verse can penetrate the heart like an arrow. Ezekiel's given this word. God says to speak it, and when when Ezekiel speaks it, it all starts to happen. Verse 8, it says, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. Now, Ezekiel's not the one making this happen, but it goes to show that if you and I were willing to speak the word of God, a power will follow our lives. Ezekiel can't make these bones come to life. He simply said, God said, go and say it. So you say, well, if I just tell this person that Jesus died for them, what if they won't even listen? There's, the Bible never returns void. It's going to accomplish what it will. God says it will accomplish his work. And so this noise, he hears what's happening, a rattling starts to take place, and God's power begins to fill that valley. The bones come together, bone to bone. He starts to see kind of like a robot being <laughs> built all of a sudden, and skin is cut, sinews or joints are coming into place. It's, you know, he's seen literally the human body come back into place. He's witnessing the power of God resurrect this nation. And we have the same need. We have the same need, the power of God in individual lives. Romans 1.16, the gospel of Christ, for it is the power 
of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but to the Greek also. Even there, Jesus came first unto his own. But the power of the gospel radically changes lives. And we looked at this on Sunday, Luke 18, 27. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. A valley of dead bones is not a big deal for God. A nation that hasn't been in existence for 1,900 years, longer than that if you go back to Babylon, but I'm just saying post, post-Roman Empire, not a big deal for God. Mark says the same thing. Mark 10, 27, he says, for with God all things are possible. Andrew Murray said, we have a God who delights in impossibilities. A God who delights in impossibilities. And it's good for us to remember uh, that we have a God that loves to do the impossible. Now, after we're saved, once we know God loves to do the impossible, it should strengthen our faith that he can do the impossible through us. Amen? Ezekiel was just a man like us. God did a lot of great things through him. We have to believe that God can still do the impossible through us. F.B. Meyer says, we never test the resources of God until we attempt the impossible. We've never attempted the resources of God until we attempt the the impossible. Those things that go against our, wow, I don't know that that can happen. I don't know that God can actually do that. I don't know if that goes against my comfort zone. Even after we're saved, we have to remember his greatness and our dependence upon it. Um, I mentioned Isaiah earlier. Isaiah also seems to speak to uh, God's supernatural bringing forth Israel as a nation and how he kind of pulls it all together rather quickly. Remember, the process of them being filled with the Spirit will take time, but in 1948, I mean, no one saw it coming that Israel would all of a sudden, uh, you know, a few years earlier than that, no one would have seen it coming before the rise of the Third Reich. Yeah, people had talked about it, for, but it would never come to fruition. Uh, but Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 and 8, uh, listen to these passages. It says, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Isaiah seeming to speak to the same uh, thing in a different way, not the dry bones, but more that God would give birth to the nation suddenly as if it were in a day, May 1948. Nothing's impossible for the power of God. Uh, Israel today uh, continues to defy, um, you know, there's just so, there's so many points I could bring up, but uh, right now, uh, if you go out to uh, this website called Startup Nation, uh, two guys wrote a book about Israel's amazing uh, ingenuity in our lifetime that this tiny little country and the number of patents and inventions that, that the nation, because once God brought it to life, it's actually just thriving in ways that just defy uh, any conventional thinking about, you know, why, why is it? Um, but on their website, it says, it, it asks this question. It says, how is it that Israel, a country of 7.1 million, only 60 years old, surrounded by enemies, in a constant state of war since its founding, with no natural resources, produces more startup companies than large, peaceful, and stable nations like Japan, China, India, Korea, Canada, and the United Kingdom? How is it that Israel has, per person, attracted over twice as much venture capital investment as the United States, and 30 times more than Europe. Right now. It's amazing. The number of inventions, because God is giving, he's poured out with his power, he's brought the nation back to life, but he's actually using these things that they would actually open their eyes and see that what they really need is the power of God unto salvation. He's doing these great things. Now, once that power comes in, I mentioned Israel received attacks um, immediately. And when we first get, and we, when we get saved, it's, even though God's done a great work and we've been born again, it's not smooth sailing after that. Remember, Israel becomes a nation in 48. Immediately the attacks come. By the way, anytime you choose to do anything for God, the attacks will come. You take a step of faith, you take a new step, attacks will come. But it comes right after salvation, too. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, People who think that once they're converted, all will be happy have forgotten Satan. 
That's a pretty simple way to describe it, isn't it? Israel has been attacked by Satan forever, but if you're born again, you'll be attacked by it. So the power of God may come in, but the enemy will keep coming. It's just like the uh, jihadists there, and uh, they've already said they will not stop attacking until they've given every drop of blood. That if they lose 100 guys in French police raids, will that stop them at all? Not a bit. Not one bit. Because Satan will keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, but you have to keep going to Lord on your knees and say, Lord, you've given me the power to be saved. I can have the power to walk through. Last point, the calling. Uh, Ezekiel sees that, remember, that God raises the nation up just like he raises us up. Uh, but his ultimate goal, Israel was always called to be a light to the nations. But you can't be a light to the nations unless the spirit of the living God is flowing through the nation. And when Israel turned to idolatry, the light went out. Remember we saw it's in this book of Ezekiel that the spirit of God left the temple. And Ezekiel actually saw the spirit of the Lord leave. That was a grievous thing for him that he realized that his nation... God had removed his holy power and presence from the nation. Now, God could still reach down and help Jeremiah and help Ezekiel, but he had removed his presence from the people. And we still run the risk, even our own nation, the more we turn our back on God, we run the risk of God removing the presence of his power and his protection and all those things. Now, I believe that uh, we still have many that uh, even churches that God has still filled uh, people that are filled with the Spirit, churches that are filled with the Spirit. I believe our church can be drenched with the Spirit. That's what God wants to do. Far more, whatever you think the Spirit is doing here, God wants to do a hundred times more than what we're currently seeing. And in Israel's case, even though the nation would rise up and come back to be a nation, it's verse 14 that God says, I'll put my Spirit in you. Everything will change. And you'll live. Now, it was already indicates that the nation was living and I think that, again, many Christians, when they first get saved, they might have be born again, but God wants them to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit. A lot of Christians are saved, but they don't live life in the Spirit. Would you guys agree? The calling is life in the Spirit. The calling is to really be so filled with the Holy Spirit that you really are able to say, not thy will, but thine be done. It's lived out in our life. Jesus said, you'll, and the Lord said, you'll live in the land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and performed it. We'll know him differently. We'll hear the voice of the Lord. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Someday, Jesus will literally sit in the nation state, in the city of Jerusalem, on a throne there, the Spirit of the living God will actually be present, and the literal person of Jesus Christ will be in their midst, and they'll worship him. We're actually going to we'll have to stop because verses 15 through 28 get into some of this when he talks about one kingdom and one king. Does that sound familiar? We've got to get into that uh, in our next study. But we'll have, to close, uh, we'll have to close there. And we won't have a study uh, next Wednesday because if you recall... Um, well, let me close in prayer, and I'll tell you about that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just bow before you now, and we, uh, Lord, we just, we see these things, and they're a reminder that even while the enemy is at work to bring about death, to derail your plan, that, Lord, your power, your sovereignty, your love, nothing can stop your plan. And, Lord, we thank you, each of us here, that nothing stopped you from pursuing us. Your word says that we did not seek you, but you sought us. And we thank you for coming and reaching out, opening our eyes, pulling us out of darkness and our own blindness into the light of salvation. And Lord, we pray that uh, even as we look at the nation of Israel and the things that unfold in these prophetic chapters, Lord, that uh, you would make uh, clear to us how these apply in the times in which we live but also, Lord, how they apply to us personally and how we can walk in your power, filled with your Holy Spirit, that your Spirit would be flowing through our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So next Wednesday, we don't have a service. This was announced, but just reminding you, because next Wednesday is the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, we did some research. A lot of Calvary chapels around the state don't have the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, and uh, we kind of felt like, you know, with as many people traveling and uh, just, um, you know, maybe your need to baste the turkey and all that stuff the night before and wrap stuff and, you know, some of you that are real gourmet, people, you know, really making stuff from scratch. Uh, so um, this coming Wednesday, we will not have service. The following Wednesday is the prayer and praise service, which uh, we were doing just before Thanksgiving. But so that is, what is that, December 2nd, Tawan? So we have a prayer and praise service that night, but this coming Wednesday, uh, enjoy your family, watch Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving thing, whatever it is you do uh, for, for your own traditions, and uh, then uh, reminder, this Sunday we do have, uh, I think you made all those announcements anyway, but again, just a reminder, we're having a fellowship, food fellowship thing right after the service. Uh, I think it's going to be about 46 degrees, but that doesn't bother the kids. They'll still be playing basketball out there. It's supposed to be sunny. So it should be nice this Sunday. Um, so that's this Sunday. If you want to bring other people, invite them, go for it. And then, uh, again, the following Wednesday is, uh, is our prayer and praise. So with that, you guys are dismissed. Have a blessed evening. <laughs>